Well, good morning, church family. Obviously, I'm not present this morning. Like several others in our church, I've tested positive for COVID. As you can hear, I'm somewhat congested. I've had no other symptoms, but out of caution, our elders felt it would be better for me to preach via video today. Now, many of you are probably familiar with this movie line. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. If, like me, you are a fan of the 1987 film The Princess Bride, you can no doubt see in your mind's eye that scene. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Now, we can say that line with gusto because all of us, at some time or another, have had a sense of revenge we would have loved to enact on some perpetrator. Well, if The Princess Bride is not your style or cup of tea, maybe Carrie Underwood is. Perhaps you've sung these lyrics at the top of your lungs, thinking of somebody in particular. I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive, carved my name into his leather seats. I took a Louisville slugger to both headlights. I slashed a hole in all four tires. Maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. Yeah, see, we love revenge stories. We love it when someone who's been wronged gets even. Maybe you're familiar with the movie The Count of Monte Cristo, as he systematically pays back everyone who's ever done him wrong. And the reason we resonate with these kinds of movies and shows and songs is because we all know what it's like to be wronged, or when someone close to us has been wronged. Many of us know what it's like to have been bullied, or have experienced the broken promises by a friend, or even the abandonment of a parent. Someone you've trusted may have betrayed that trust or even gossiped about you. We can say the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But that's simply not true. The wounds of words often remain with us long after the scrapes and scratches from sticks and stones are fully healed. And each of these betrayals, each of these experiences of broken trust, they are incredibly real and they carry with them deep and lasting pain. And there is a sense we should love a good revenge story. Why? Because we've been made in the image of God, and as such, we all carry an innate sense of justice. God is a just God, and we've been made in his image. The problem comes in when we try to be the one to execute that justice. That job belongs to God alone. Our sense of justice is right, but our desire to execute that justice is wrong. What we're really talking about here is just this one word, conflict. If you engage in any kind of human relationship, you will encounter conflict. It's guaranteed. Well, take your Bibles out and turn to Proverbs chapter 25. I'm preaching a message this morning I've entitled, Wisdom and Conflict. I don't think I have to convince you this morning that conflict is a reality in every human relationship. But just in case there are any doubters in the room, I want to take an informal poll about a few different relationships many of us are engaged in. Now, even though I'm not there with you, I want you to be honest. So, show of hands. If you're married and you've ever experienced conflict with your spouse, go and lift your hand up. Parents, have you ever experienced conflict with your ch children? Good. Children, even if you're adults, have you ever experienced conflict with your parents? How about this one? Have you ever had a conflict at work? Anyone here ever experienced a conflict with 
a neighbor? All right, let's be real here for just a moment this morning. Have you ever experienced a conflict at church? Lift your hand up. And finally, how about this? Have you ever experienced a conflict on social media? Have you ever gotten into an argument on Facebook? Let's all be honest here. Have we? I ask those questions simply to illustrate the fact that conflict is a reality. It is an experience for everyone, even Jesus-loving Christians. Of course, you knew that already, didn't you? Every one of us has been in conflict. Possibly you are right now, and definitely you will be in the future. Now, undoubtedly, someone in your life is stirring the pot. Someone right now is draining your emotions. Someone right now is sapping your spiritual vitality and creating tension in your family, in the workplace, or in school, or even here at church. We need wisdom in dealing with these kinds of situations. And I think this section of Proverbs can help provide that wisdom we need. So look in your Bible. I'll begin reading at the third line of verse 7. Here's God's word. This is what it says. What your eyes have seen, do not hastily bring into court. For what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Argue your case with your neighbor, neighbor himself and do not reveal another's secret. Lest he hears you, bring shame upon you, and your ill repute have no end. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club, or a sword, or a sharp arrow. Trusting in a treacherous man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, as we've said in this series, Proverbs is a book about wisdom. And the amazing thing about the book of Proverbs is it addresses and it speaks to specific issues that are critical in everyday life. It speaks to issues like laziness, sex, immorality, anger, work, friendship, our words, and so much more. Now, since it addresses so many critical issues of everyday life, it's not surprising that it also addresses this issue of conflict. Human conflict is really addressed throughout the book of Proverbs, but this 25th chapter is just chocked full of principle after principle after principle of how we should seek to resolve and deal with it in our lives. In fact, there are five principles total I want us to consider this morning regarding wisdom and conflict from, conflict, excuse me, from this passage. The first one is this. Number one, the process to reverse conflict. The process to reverse conflict. The passage begins by talking about taking someone to court, 
taking legal action against someone you believe has wronged you in some way. It is no secret to any of you that we live in a very litigious society. According to Wikipedia, the U.S. has by far the most lawyers per capita in the world. Now, I believe it is providential when any passage of Scripture gives me an excuse for telling a lawyer joke. A couple weeks ago, I came across this true story that happens to involve both lawyers and court. Hence, it's undeniable relevance to the passage I'm preaching this morning. Now, I know the story is true because I found it on the Internet. So a policeman was being cross-examined by a defense attorney during a felony trial, and the lawyer was trying to determine the police officer's credibility. So he asked the question, Officer, did you see my client fleeing the scene? Uh, No, sir. But I subsequently observed a person matching the description of the offender running several blocks away. Officer, who provided this description? The officer said, well, the other officer who responded to the scene. So the lawyer questioned him, a fellow officer provided the description of the so-called offender. Do you trust your fellow officers? He said, yes, sir, with my life. With your life? Well, let me ask you this then, officer. Do you have a room where you change your clothes in preparation for your daily duties? Yes, sir, we do. And do you have a locker in that room? Yes, sir, I do. And do you have a lock on your locker? Yes, sir. Now, why is it, officer, if you trust your fellow officers with your life, you find it necessary to lock your locker in a room you share with these same officers? Here's what the policeman said. Well, you see, sir, we share the building with the court complex, and sometimes lawyers have been known to walk through that room. (laughs) As I was saying, we live in a very legal suing society. Sometimes we have the sue me, sue you blues. People will sue anybody over anything. Frivolous lawsuits abound and thus insurance coverage abounds. But Proverbs 25.8 urges us not to go to court hastily. Now please understand that the Bible does not denounce the court system. In fact, the apostle Paul availed himself of the court system when he appealed his case all the way to Caesar. Scripture does not even badmouth lawyers except to the extent that it takes a dim view of all sinners, which, of course, includes lawyers. Now, I hate to admit it, but the lawyers Jesus castigates so frequently in the Gospels were, in reality, more likely theologians than they were lawyers as we know them. But two caveats are consistently offered in the Scripture relative to the legal system. Number one, no one should go to court hastily, and a believer should never take a fellow Christian to court. Now, the latter point is made explicitly clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The former point is made right here in our text. In fact, regarding going to court, Solomon here gives us a negative prohibition and a positive exhortation. First, let's consider the negative pro- prohibition, avoid court. The negative prohibition Solomon gives is avoid court. Look at the opening of this passage. What your eyes have seen, do not hastily bring into court. For what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Now, the person in view in verses 7 through 8 has apparently been an eyewitness to something that looks suspicious. But Solomon urges him not to immediately contact the authorities. I don't think he's encouraging us to take this kind of none of your business, don't see, don't tell attitude about crime. He's not talking about a case here where you see a child being abused or a woman assaulted. No. 
But he is urging caution, because sometimes our eyes deceive us. The, susp- the supposedly suspicious behavior turns out to have an innocent explanation, and then the accuser will have egg on his face. I can't help but think of the bizarre case involving Congressman Steve Cohen from Tennessee. He was caught tweeting during the State of the Union address a few years ago. Now, it's not just that he was posting on Twitter while the president was speaking, but it was who he was tweeting to, this young, blonde bombshell. You see, she had tweeted him first, I see you on TV, and here was his reply to the tweet. He said, nice to know you were watching State of the Union. Happy Valentine's, beautiful girl, I-L-U, that's short for I love you. Well, his scandal was quickly reported by the media, forcing Cohen to announce that the woman he was tweeting to was actually his long-lost daughter, whom he had only recently discovered. The point is, don't quickly bring an accusation against someone if you don't know all the facts. Otherwise, your neighbor will put you to shame. Now, the next two verses tell us what a person should do instead. Positive exhortation, personally confront. Here's the positive exhortation Solomon gives, personally confront. Look at verses 9 and 10. Argue your case with your neighbor himself and do not reveal another's secret, lest he hears you, bring shame upon you, and your ill repute have no end. The first step Solomon says is to go to the person in question. Can I tell you that in my 30 years of ministry, I can't imagine how many times conflicts and misunderstandings would have been quickly resolved if people would have simply sat down and had a face-to-face conversation. Now, the underlying principle here is exactly what Jesus taught in Matthew 18 regarding if someone sins against you. He said this in Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now, in our focal passage, Solomon also stresses the importance of confidentiality. He says, do not reveal another's secret. People often choose not to go to the authorities, but do something that's really even more damaging. They'll spread their suspicions around the community. Truth is not well served by gossip, nor is conflict resolved that way. Again, the reason given in Proverbs for going directly to your neighbor is that if it turns out you've misread the situation, you won't be shamed and your reputation destroyed. Now, I grant that sometimes going directly to the brother or neighbor doesn't always work out. Sometimes they'll lie. Sometimes they won't listen. Or sometimes they won't be reasonable. Well, Jesus recognized this as well, so he continued in Matthew 18 with a very straightforward process if that happens. His next words in verse 16 are this, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So, we should always start with a face-to-face approach. I am convinced that the vast majority of serious conflicts we have in our lives could be avoided if we practice just this one principle. But if the face-to-face approach doesn't work, involve other people along the way. That's the process Solomon gives us to reverse conflict. Well, that leads to the second principle discussed in this passage. Number two, 
the problem at the root of conflict. The problem at the root of conflict. So just what is the problem? Talk, 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 talk. We talk too much or we talk inappropriately. Now next week we'll be considering wisdom and our words, but this is going to be just a little preview for us because verses 11 through 15 have to do with our words. And the deal is this, our words, our language, how, when, and what we speak is normally the problem at the root of all conflict. Our words have incredible power. And here too, Solomon gives both a positive and then a negative. First, appropriate words prevent it. This is the positive. Appropriate words prevent conflict. Solomon offers three similes, that's like or as, right, to communicate the appropriate usage of our words. First, in verse 11, we read, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. The beauty of an apple and the value of gold are greatly enhanced when an artist engraves a silver setting, perhaps a sculptured figure to hold the apples. Words by themselves may be neutral, but when spoken in the right setting, at the right time, and in the right way, they're greatly enhanced. Those kinds of words instantly calm a tense situation and produce peace instead of conflict. On verse 12, he offers another simile. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Here, Solomon seems to be going back to the exhortation to argue your case directly with your neighbor. If you confront him wisely and if he is in a listening mood, the result can be likened to a valuable piece of jewelry. The third simile is in verse 13, and it's presented to show us how appropriate words can prevent conflict. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. Now, this may need a bit of explanation. Unlike today, when farmers harvest in an air-conditioned combine, grain harvesting in Palestine in that day was a hot, dusty job. The wheat was cut with a hand swath, crushed under a millstone being pulled by oxen, then thrown up in the air so the wind could blow away the chaff and the wheat would fall to the ground. I suspect the farmer in the middle of harvest enduring that hot and dusty job could be dreaming of the cold, refreshing snow of winter. Well, the truth is some scholars actually suggest the writer is referring to not daydreams, but to actual drinks cooled with snow. You see, Mount Hermon in Israel would still have snow-covered peaks even in the summertime. And laborers would bring the frozen-packed snow from Mount Hermon and store it in caves for just such a use. So for all of us who like ice in our tea, it's altogether biblical. So what does this have to do with the messenger who communicates faithfully and appropriately what his master tells him to communicate? Well, communication in ancient times was difficult and slow. Not only was there no email, there wasn't even reliable snail mail. So if a man had an important message to communicate, he sent a messenger. But what if the messenger decided to spin the message to his own advantage? Or what if he decided to leave something out of the message? That could certainly create problems and conflict. But if the messenger was faithful, in other words, if he communicated exactly what he was told to communicate... Well, he would be like a snow-cooled drink during the heat of harvest, like iced tea on a hot day. That would refresh the soul of the one who sent him. So appropriate words prevent conflict. On the other hand, here's the negative part. Inappropriate words provoke it. 
inappropriate words will provoke conflict. In verse 14 of chapter 25, Solomon examines another way inappropriate words can stir up conflict. He contrasts the faithful messenger with the unfaithful boaster. Notice what he says. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. Clouds and wind are predictors of rain. When no rain arrives, well, the farmer is disappointed. So, the man who boasts of a gift he doesn't give is the same way. Now, the original Hebrew suggests that the boaster has loudly and with great fanfare promised a gift, exciting, great expectations, and then everyone sinks into disappointment. Several years ago, almost two decades ago, I started a wrestling program at Silverdale Academy. I secured two Hall of Fame coaches and recruited about two dozen athletes from the student body. Well, our inaugural year, we actually fielded a full squad and wrestled some perennial local powerhouses like Cleveland, Saudi Daisy, Macaulay. Well, we got shellacked in every single match, but we made some tremendous strides. Year two was even better with more kids coming out. We had a year of experience. We began to bounce around the idea of actually building a facility close to campus that would be a dedicated practice space for the wrestling team. Well, we became aware of a local businessman who said he would completely pay for the construction of the building so long as the facility would have his name on it in perpetuity, similar to if you're familiar with the Allen Jones Wrestling Center at Cleveland High School. Well, it just so happens that a small house adjacent to the school campus became available for sale. One of our athlete's parents decided to purchase the property and we began to design a blueprint for this new wrestling facility, which would be located immediately behind this house. And once our plans were complete, we're ready to break ground, we're ready to start construction, the potential philanthropist and donor said, sorry, I'm not going to be able to do it. And the wind went out of our sails. <laughs> like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. In verse 15, we're offered a strange proverb, the second half of which is not immediately understandable, either in terms of its meaning or how it fits into this context in Proverbs chapter 25. I'll just call it a bonus proverb on how to use appropriate words. Here's verse 15. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Now, Bible commentator Bruce Waltke suggests that the soft tongue breaking a bone can best be understood like this. Fracturing the bones here refers to breaking down a person's deepest, most hardened resistance to an idea. Now, do you think that happens more readily when we use gentle words, gentle tone, or harsh speech? The phrase soft tongue no doubt ref uh, refers to gentle words. I think all of us could honestly assess the conflicts we've experienced in our lives, and we could admit that they were either intensified or diminished by the kinds of words we used or didn't use. Again, next week we'll spend the whole message, Lord willing, considering the wisdom of our words. But as the saying goes, actions speak louder than words. And that leads to the third principle from this passage. Number three, the practice to reduce conflict. The practice to reduce conflict. Look at verses 16 and 17. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, 
lest he have his fill of you and hate you. So what is this about? Well, there's a clear parallelism between verses 16 and verse 17. An example from nature is used in verse 16 to teach a spiritual lesson in verse 17. And the point of verse 16 is that food, even the best of it, must be eaten in moderation. If you eat too much, even if it's something you love, you'll throw it up. And you may, in fact, even lose your appetite entirely for what was once your favorite dish. Uh, this happened to me one time whenever I was in middle school. I used to love Rice Krispie Treats, but this girl in my youth group, who I had a crush on, brought Rice Krispie Treats to our youth event at church. And as a show of affection, I kept eating her Rice Krispie Treats and telling her how good they were until finally I threw them all up in the bathroom. <laughs> to this day, I can't stand Rice Krispie Treats. Well, the same principle can be applied to relationships. If you're constantly dropping in on someone unannounced or calling them on the phone or emailing or texting, they can quickly get their fill of you and begin to loathe you. The other person begins to look for excuses to avoid spending time with you. They don't return your phone calls or respond to your text messages. The relationship has been damaged because you didn't use moderation. Now, Solomon isn't arguing against close friendships or advocating that we play hard to get or something. Rather, what he's doing is he's looking at what can happen when we don't practice discernment. We don't practice moderation. You see, friendship ripens through sensitivity and a willingness to give the other person space, to be a person in his or her own right. Another way of expressing the same thought is the modern Proverbs. Guests like fish, stink after three days. Now, that's not always true, but it's better to let someone beg you to stay longer than for them to wish you were gone earlier. Solomon wants to protect us from the pain and the suffering and conflict caused by broken relationships. Well, that leads to the fourth principle from this passage. Number four, the patterns that raise conflict. The patterns that raise conflict. Now, in verses 18 through 20, Solomon turns his attention to three kinds of people who might be deemed carriers of conflict. We'll cover these quickly. The first one I would describe like this. The lethal talker. The lethal talker. Verse 18. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. The false witness, a person who lies about someone else, he's compared to three deadly weapons of war here. The club, the sword, and the arrow. Solomon depicts this perjurer as beating his neighbor's brains out with the war club, piercing his intestines with a sword, and then finally dispatching him with a deadly arrow. Lying about another person is a very serious issue to God and obviously a pattern that raises conflict. Here's the next one. The silent traitor. The silent traitor. Verse 19. Trusting in a treacherous man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. Now, in a day when dentistry was pretty primitive, a bad tooth was a major source of pain and suffering. Most of us have probably sprained an ankle and know how painful that can be and how long the pain can last. So it is when you place confidence in a person in a time of adversity and that person is unfaithful. In Psalm 55, David shares how devastating it was for him when he was betrayed by a close associate. He writes, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. 
It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I can hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Now you can sense and feel the pathos, the emotion, the pain in his voice. Well, that leads to the third pattern that raises conflict, the insensitive singer. The insensitive singer. Look at verse 20. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Taking warm clothes off on a cold day is just stupid. And pouring vinegar on soda produces a mini eruption. But why are these actions compared to singing songs to a person with a heavy heart? What's wrong with that? Well, Solomon is thinking of the person who fails to use discernment and tries to use lighthearted entertainment to pull his friend out of depression. That doesn't help the situation. It just makes things worse. And so he's saying, show some sensitivity. Now, so far, our text has addressed a number of aspects of conflict, all of which we can relate to. But in verse 21 and 22, he gets to the real heart of the matter of how to resolve conflict. And frankly, its answer is not what most of us want to hear. So the fifth and final principle I want us to consider is this. Number five, the path to resolve conflict. The path to resolve conflict. Here's verse 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, it's because Paul actually quotes this proverb in a very familiar passage, Romans chapter 12. Now, the context of his quote in Romans 12 is the practice of love within the body of Christ. And I think it would be helpful to see how Paul applies these words to the church in Rome and the church in Lookout Valley. He writes, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, like I mentioned at the beginning of this message, there is a streak of revenge in all of us. But the assumption of this passage is that God is able and willing to deal with wrongdoers better than we ever could. In his own time and in his own way, he can handle every situation without injury to innocent parties. So we should, as Paul says, leave it to the wrath of God. But you may say, what do you expect me to do? If somebody wrongs me terribly, do you expect me to just do nothing? Oh no, there's something you can do. Be kind to him. And so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. What does that phrase mean? It's in Proverbs and Romans. As the motivation for kindness to be shown to an enemy. I think it's important then that we understand what it means. I remember seeing a marquee sign in front of a Baptist church one time that said this, Forgive your enemies. It messes with their heads. Now, perhaps that's the point of what Paul and Solomon are saying, but hardly seems to be the spirit of this passage. Better is the interpretation which takes the heaping of the coals 
as a way of producing a sense of shame and remorse in our enemy with the hope that he will repent and be restored. After all, coals of fire on your head are to be preferred rather than burning in a lake of fire. Paul summarizes the proverb in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Being overcome with evil means allowing evil to determine our responses, our reactions. Instead, we should make every effort to demonstrate that love can get victory over evil. Conflict can be resolved if we approach it this way. There's a wonderful example of this kind of response in the life of David. He was being pursued by uh, the ravenous King Saul, who had every intention of killing David. David was hiding in the recesses of a cave in En Gedi when Saul entered the cave to relieve himself. Though his fellow soldiers begged David to take what they viewed as an obvious opportunity God had given him to kill Saul, David chose instead to sneak up and cut off a piece of Saul's robe. When Saul had left the cave and had moved across the ravine to a safe distance, David called out, showing him the piece of the robe, proving that he could have killed Saul and begged him for peace. Saul responded, you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. What was David doing? He was heaping coals of fire on the head of his enemy. He learned how to overcome evil with good. Now you may be thinking, well, that's good in theory, but has anyone ever really done that? Has anyone ever really shown kindness to a sworn enemy? Has anyone ever done good towards someone who was hostile towards them, who had a posture of hostility towards them? Well, I can think of someone, Jesus. You see, each and every one of us, according to the Bible, were enemies of God. Each and every one of us were hostile to the truth and rebellious to his rule. And in that very state of hostility, what did God do? Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friend, that's ultimate kindness. I'm sure all of us have felt some conviction this morning. Conflict is a part of our lives. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that much of it is our own fault. If we didn't start it, we've often exacerbated it by our reactions. So what do we do with the regret? What do we do with the guilt? Well, these Proverbs are just so many platitudes that will remain beyond our reach unless we appropriate the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to change our responses. Now, last week we considered 2 Corinthians 5.17 when I closed the message. I want us to see it again, but also continue to verse 18. The Bible says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. One of the great themes of our faith is reconciliation. Through Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death, he has reconciled his enemies to God. And that includes you and that includes me. And what this is telling us is that through Christ, we can be reconciled to God. And once that happens, we can take on the ministry of reconciliation with others. And that leads to my last thought. We pursue conflict resolutions with others because Christ has accomplished it in us. Let me pray for us as we close. 
Lord God, I do pray that as we consider the truths from Proverbs chapter 25 about conflict, about something that all of us have much experience in, Lord, I pray that we will look to Jesus, that though we were hostile to him, though we were the enemies of God, Jesus shed his blood to redeem us, to reconcile us to God, to end the conflict and the hostility, and to bring peace where there were once warring factions. So Jesus, we do pray that you would continue to do that work of reconciliation in our own hearts and that you would cause us to be ministers of reconciliation who overcome evil with good. And now, Lord, as we continue to worship, we want to just simply say thank you for the reconciliation we have in you. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood.